joining are my guests, Rachel Wright, uh, Vaughn Gilmore, and Dr. Vinita Puduri. Uh, they are from Santa Maria Hostel, and which is one of Texas' largest multi-site residential and outpatient substance use disorder treatment centers for women. Today, we will learn about the programs provided to women recovering from substance use disorder and how they put women and their children on the path to recovery. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. How are you all doing this morning? Good, thank you. Good, yeah, I am uh, really looking forward to this hour spending with y'all, talking about Santa Maria, all the work that they'll do. And this is the first time I have y'all on Chai Time, so there's a lot to talk about, a lot to discuss, <laughs> and uh, I hope we'll be able to cover everything this morning and, of course, raise uh, raise awareness as well. So, uh, Rachel, let's begin with you. Um, give us a brief history of Santa Maria. Sure. So Santa Maria started in the late 50s. We've been serving women in Houston for over 60 years. And the initial um, organization was a home mm -hmm. that acted as a halfway house for women, many of them who had aged out of orphanages. And so it really was housing as a priority for those ladies. Over time, the mission of the organization shifted to provide substance use treatment as that became more of a root cause to what services the women were needing. Okay. And so what population does Santa Maria serve? So we serve over 6,000 women, children, and family members every year. 99% of those individuals are at 100% or below 100% of the federal poverty level. So most of the people that we serve do not have means to receive treatment or services another way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so how can women who need your services contact Santa Maria. So Santa, the best way is to visit our website at santamariahostel.org. Okay. Um, if someone is in need of substance use treatment, there is a form on our website that they can easily fill out. Okay. They can also call Santa Maria. Um, and our phone number is 713-691-0900. So how did you get involved? So I came to Santa Maria as a staff member, so I'm very new to this topic of substance use. So I'm very glad that Vaughn is here with me <laughs> as the, the expert in that area. But I've been working in nonprofit fundraising and marketing for over 20 years. So okay. I was excited to take on a new challenge. And how, is, uh, how has it been for you so far? It's great. It's a lot. It's a lot to learn, but it's very rewarding. Oh, that's wonderful. And so do you get to talk to the women out there, uh, you know, like have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with any of them? Usually most of the women that I interview or have conversations with are those who have been through our program and okay. have been um, out in the community or out I hate to say out, but living in their recovery for a year or more, that would be the best way to articulate that. And then those are ladies whose stories that we like to um, capture and be able to talk about to the community so that they can see the great success that can come from living a life in recovery. Oh, okay. I know I have seen a, a short clip uh, on the website mm -hmm. itself where, um, you know, some of the women who have uh, recovered, like their success stories, and they become part of helping other women. 
Yeah, so, so I can tell you a little bit about yeah, that. Sure. Um, so we we definitely have women who might have successfully completed our program that come back to volunteer, um, or they might move on to get some type of certification, like a peer recovery specialist certification, where they use their lived experience to help other women, um, or sometimes they go on to get additional training and become licensed counselors, um, and then come back and work for us as staff members. Um, I have um, you know program directors or counselors that work in our programs that are um, graduates of our, our programs. Um, we also just attract a lot of staff that might have lived experience with substance use disorder or recovery um, because they're so passionate about the work. Yeah, and I know like even with other um, nonprofits, mm-hmm. when people who have gone through uh, are you know, gone through struggles mm-hmm. and challenges and they come out doing fine, doing well, and then they give back that way. A lot of, a lot of other people can relate to that. Then they, they're more comfortable and even they're able to communicate and be a little open because I'm sure it must be very, very difficult to kind of break that shell initially, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, there is a lot of stigma and a lot of shame that mm. keeps a lot of people from getting help for substance use disorders and for mental health disorders. And so it can be helpful to have somebody walk alongside you that has that lived experience mm-hmm. um, to take some of the shame away and say, I've been there too. Um, and even really, we find that one of the things that's so valuable about substance use treatment is the community setting, right? Being in a group of other people with that same experience, um, that really takes away a lot of the stigma to sit with other people who are are doing the same thing that you're doing. Um, and so we use a lot of groups and a lot of peer relationships as part of our treatment programs. Okay. So can you walk us through someone who comes to Santa Maria? What happens? What are the steps when someone just walks in? Sure. So seeking treatment at Santa Maria or really any substance use disorder treatment typically starts with either the individual or maybe their family member reaching out for help. Um, For us, we do that through an electronic screening form, like Rachel mentioned. For some treatment centers, it's a a phone call, but sort of starting that process and inquiring. Um, And most treatment centers, including at Santa Maria, are going to start with an assessment um, to, to just see what's going on. And part of a good assessment is getting a history of substance use, of physical health, mental health, goals, and then making a recommendation for what we call level of care. Um, does this person need to go to detox? Do they need to go to residential? Do they need to go to outpatient? Um, so a clinical team member is going to make an as- a recommendation based on that assessment mm-hmm. and, then, and then give somebody those options and say, here's what we're recommending um, to them and their family and then help them get enrolled into that recommended program. Okay. And uh, speaking of programs, mm-hmm. I know you'll have a lot yes. of programs. <laughs> <laughs> so can you like, you know, like elaborate on the type of programs that uh, y'all have? Sure. So, I mean, we have a ri- wide range of treatment <laughs> programs. Um, I think most commonly we're known for what is our residential women and children program okay. um, because that is so rare. So there's really only one other place in the state of Texas where women can go to treatment um, and stay there with their children um, or their babies. Um, we also have just uh, tra- traditional sort of 
adult women substance use disorder treatment. We have detox programs. We have some justice-involved programs as well for women that specifically are in the justice system. Um, and they might be coming in as part of that program where they're required to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have outpatient services where you're just doing it um, individual and group therapy on Zoom. Um, and then we have prevention and intervention services as well. Rachel probably can talk more about some of that if she wants. Right. <laughs> Go ahead, Rachel. Sure. So our um, our intervention and prevention services are designed for children and families, and we are have services in three different school districts. We're in Aldine, Houston, and Spring Branch school districts. And one of the main components of that is an educational program called Strengthening Families. We find that when the family structure is strengthened, then the children are less likely to engage in dangerous activities such as substance use. Okay. So that's um, that's the root of that of okay. that program and the prevention program. We've s- received some community awards for that as well. Oh wow, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So how long do these programs last? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the individual. It's so individualized. So treatment, um, substance use treatment should be individualized, right? Um, So again, that assessment is helping to figure out not only what type of treatment does somebody need, but maybe how long should they be in treatment. Um, So we have programs 90 days or more. Mm -hmm. Um, Some women are in services with us between our treatment and housing for Mm -hmm. two years. Um, And some just come do 60 days with us, and then they go back to their regular lives and their support system. Um, And so along the way, a participant should really be working with their treatment team to figure out what do I need to do next? What does success look like for me? How long do I need to be in services? And in an ideal situation, somebody moves through what we call a continuum of care. Um, So there's lots of research that a minimum of 90 days of treatment sets people up for better success. Um, So we like to see our ladies stay at least 90 days um, if they're able to, um, because there's actual sort of uh, research out there saying that that is more effective. But people also should be stepping down, like so they might start in residential, then move to what we call supportive residential, then to outpatient, right, then to recovery coaching. So it's like a stair step down approach. You're starting with the most services and slowly reducing those services services over time. Um, Because going from a very high level of treatment to right back in your family system or your community where you were using before um, often can lead to a recurrence of use. Okay. And um, so during, have you, uh, has there been an increase after the pandemic? In in substance use or in need for treatment? (laughs) I would say both. Yeah. Yes, um, definitely. I mean, there's lots of community research samples showing increases in actually things like alcohol use Mm -hmm. during COVID and since COVID. Um, Lots of people were using alcohol in unhealthy ways. We're still seeing that. Um, There has definitely been a demand for services as maybe people have um, lost jobs, have less access to resources, may have become unhoused during COVID as well. Yeah, because I know the sales, alcohol sales had shot up a Mm -hmm. lot during uh, COVID for Mm -hmm. sure. People, I mean, they had nothing else to do and then most of them were at home. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, alcohol was the mm-hmm. for some people thinking that's the other way just to pass the time. Or, yes. Yeah. So what should women expect or not expect when entering treatment? You want me to answer that, Rachel? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if I can. I think at Santa Maria, one thing they should expect is to come into a stigma-free environment where okay. they feel welcome, where this is a place that... Um, regardless of the service that they need, that they they will find that, whether it's outpatient services, if it's residential services, they'll find a place where they can be at home. They'll find a place where their children can come with them into treatment and where their children will be safe and loved and cared for. Um, they can receive parent coaching as well um, for mothers of young children who are in residential services, as well as child care for their child that entire time. So when they're with a counselor or they're in a class, we do have on-site and off-site child care, mm-hmm. um, depending on the age of the child. So that child is being loved, they're being nurtured, they're receiving treatment and care okay. as well. And so I think that's one of the things that Santa Maria offering is an asset beyond where mm-hmm. you would find in a lot of treatment facilities yeah. is a place where your infant, small child, even school-age child is having programs and services and care given to them as well. It's so great to know that the kids are taken care of. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, the, the mom is has that peace of mind, at least, where their children are concerned. Because many times they are not able to focus on themselves because of their child. Yeah. So in this way, you know, part of that uh, stress or worry is taken care of. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is really that support around what it is like to parent. Um, and sometimes for our ladies, it might be the first time they're learning how to parent without drugs and alcohol involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the reasons it's so important that we allow women to come with their children is when we look at research around why women don't seek treatment, um, one of the most cited reasons is their children, um, right? Because they're worried about being away from them, right? I think about how hard it would be to be away from from my children for 30 or 90 days, right? Um, Or maybe there's no one else to care for them. Um, And so it is a very common obstacle that women don't want to go to treatment because they don't want to be away from their children. So this is really taking away that that barrier um, Mm -hmm. or that reason that maybe they wouldn't be able to seek treatment otherwise. Okay. And so the the services that you provide, is it only for people who live in Houston or can anyone, you know, I mean, we are, we are on live, of course. And if someone is listening and needs help, um, are they okay to reach out to y'all? Yeah. So we actually serve women from all over Texas. Um, So we are a provider for the state of Texas. Um, We get women from uh, Travis County, from Corpus Christi, from Waco, um, from Beaumont, a lot of places where there are not these specialized services for women. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they are looking for gender specific programming or programming for women with children. Okay, that's great. And why is this work important in the community? <laughs> so, many re- so many reasons. I you should tell it all. <laughs> Just say it. <laughs> I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think it's really important for a lot of different reasons. I mean, targeting women mm-hmm. um, and that two generational approach, I think, is mm-hmm. so important. Um, you know, 
oftentimes it's not just one generation that is affected by substance use and addictive disorders, right? It is usually multiple generations. Usually by the time somebody comes into treatment with us, their parents, maybe their grandparents, multiple people have had issues with drugs and alcohol. Um, and so we're talking about breaking generational cycles. We're talking about healing intergenerational trauma um, and really intervening with mom and those children to set the whole family system up for success. And that's a pretty unique. Yeah. And what is the misconceptions usually when it comes to addiction to substance use? I know there are many, you know, misconceptions on that. So let's touch on that as well. Yeah, I think that's really important because oftentimes, you know, working at Santa Maria, we we do, like Rachel mentioned, tend to serve an underserved group of individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is a lot of misconception about who addiction can happen to, um, that it only happens to people from bad families or that it only happens to, um, you know, people who really are not taking care of themselves, right? There is a lot of stigma and misunderstanding about what sets people up for addiction. Um, Unfortunately, it does not discriminate. It can affect people from all social classes, all over, right? It doesn't really matter what kind of family you came from. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Addiction is a brain disease, so it's that repeated exposure to drugs that causes addiction, uh, not somebody's lifestyle or their family. Um, and so oftentimes we're educating people about what causes addiction. It's not a moral failing. It's not their family's fault. We really want them to understand that. Okay. So are there any stats to, uh, you know, to uh, women like if, they are on the road to recovery. They go back, but then they fall back mm-hmm. again on. So is there any specific stats to that? So once somebody reaches two years of sobriety, their chance of relapse goes down significantly um, because around 18 to 24 months, we see the brain really start to recover, changes in the brain um, sort of start to go back to a more normal level of functioning. So oftentimes programs are trying to get people to that sort of first two years. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not uncommon that somebody might need more than one treatment episode, though. Um, and then you, you go back to treatment and you, you try again because maybe you've learned something. So there's no shame in that. Okay. I know. We keep saying that there's no shame. <laughs> <laughs> we re- keep repeating that word because, yeah. you know, unfortunately, that's what it is many times, mm-hmm. right? So, so uh, Vanita, I have a question for you. <laughs> so, uh, Vanita, why are you passionate about the mission of Santa Maria? And what made you, you know, join uh, Santa Maria? Be on the board, advisory board, yeah. Um, So I came to know about Santa Maria um, when I was with the Indo-American Charity Foundation. And um, we had given them a grant, I I think one or two years. Um, So I uh, came to know of Santa Maria through uh, my work in other nonprofits. Um, But I, I do, I think, kind of have a personal interest in uh, mental health, even though I'm an internal medicine physician by background, um, a lot of, and I specifically work um, in a gastroenterology practice, um, but I I do feel that there's a lot of biological and behavioral um, aspects that are tied together. Um, what we will see, uh, you know, in our practice specifically is 
the end result of alcohol use disorder or marijuana use disorder. Um, so we're not dealing with, um, you know, some of the more mental health directly aspects, but we're dealing with the uh, more biological outcomes. So, you know, being a physician, even though I'm maybe not a psychiatrist uh, per se, um, but I, I do feel the biological and behavioral basis of, you know, many addictions is um, strongly tied together. And and in our practice, we see uh, pretty severe outcomes of it. So in a gastroenterology practice, you'll mm-hmm. see patients with fatty liver and going into cirrhosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we have those types of diseases set in, um, they have not only the substance use disorder to deal with, but they also have um, a massive amount of actual physical disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the, I, I feel like we've also seen the healthcare burden come out of that too. Um, so I, I just, in general, I have a, um, I have an interest in um, the the biological basis for uh, you know um, addiction. Um, and also, you know, um, the the outcome of it, the negative outcome. Um, and also, I, I just in general am a, like a mental health advocate. Um, yeah. I feel that mental health uh, permeates into all aspects of our lives. Um, it's not just limited to depression and anxiety, um, which, you know, when people talk about mental health, they, they zero in largely on depression and anxiety. Yes. But um, there's there's so much more that we could be talking about, and addiction being you know one of those topics. Yeah, and uh, speaking of marijuana, there are many states that it, it is legal, not yet in Texas. What are your thoughts on that? Any of you ladies? Personally, um, you know, because there's several um, components that come out of uh, the marijuana plant, so. Um, I, I wouldn't say all of it is is necessarily harmful. There are some like, you know, CBD, there are some anxiolytic and pain relief aspects of it. But when you're talking on the THC side of the spectrum, the more hallucinogenic, um, and I, I would call that the more detrimental aspect of, um, you know, uh, cannabinoids. Um, but there are some, you know, benefits to the CBD side. Um, I don't have a lot of uh, direct knowledge in prescribing. You know, I'm not a marijuana, uh, you know, pr- you know, provider, or I, I'm not. I, I'm prescriber um, per se. But you know, when when people talk about uh, the cannabinoids mm-hmm. um, in general, I think people have to be more educated about the differences mm-hmm. between CBD and THC, um, and you know that there is some potential benefit to the CBD side of the spectrum, but that doesn't just cross over into all marijuana use, um, you know, point blank. Yeah, yeah. I would I would add, um, I mean, I agree with everything she's saying. With CBD, one of the risks is um, really not knowing what you're actually getting. A lot of times when they test CBD, um, it has nowhere near what is said to be in it. Um, so, you know, one of the issues that comes with it really not being regulated is consumers do not know what they're getting when they purchase CBD or THC products, which can be very dangerous. Um, I think one of the other important things for people to know is 
Um, because THC does have psychoactive properties, if somebody has a history or a family history of mental illness, um, THC can be incredibly dangerous. Um, it can lead to what we call early onset psychosis um, mm -hmm. for young people. Um, you know, actually, we have research to show the most dangerous time to use marijuana is adolescence and young adulthood, the most dangerous time. Right. Um, so if we're talking about an adult 40, 50, 60 over, that's not who we're the most concerned about. Right. Not that they also can't have a problem, but we're the most concerned about young people using marijuana because of the way it can alter the brain and because of that psychosis risk that comes along with it. Okay, well, that's good to know, because I know that it is a big uh, controversial topic to talk about. And um, I've had, uh, you know, uh, doctors who come on has come on air as well, and saying, you know, it, there are benefits for it as long as you know, it is regulated. And um, it that is important. But we see so many um, kids, you know, it's just mm -hmm. been abused, right? It's just been, even though it's not legal, it's still mm -hmm. out there. Yeah. And so it is, I guess it is important in many ways to talk about it and to raise that awareness as well, mm -hmm. because that's where it starts. Sometimes, you know, you're just using it for uh, just for, you know, just to try it or peer pressure many times uh, for just silly reasons sometimes. So it's just important to to do that. All right, so let's go on a short break. And when we return, we will continue our conversation. Time goes by so fast. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's going on? Uh, this is Chai Time on 99.5 FM. Welcome back to Chai Time uh, on 99.5 FM. If you just tuned in, I'm in conversation with Rachel Wright, with Vaughn Gilmore, and Dr. Vanita Purhuri. Uh, they are from Santa Maria, and we have been talking about the services they provide, the programs that they have, and uh, we went a little, you know, deep about even the marijuana use and things like that. So um, I wanted to ask you, Vanita, uh, what would you say to others to encourage them to engage with this kind of work? Really, I think we have to destigmatize. You know, not just substance use disorder, but I think mental health topics in general, you know. Um, and I don't, I want to say that it's, you know, more, there's more shame, fear, and guilt in the South Asian community around these topics. But I think it's it's also a general societal um, issue too, right? The shame, fear, and guilt that follows certain topics in healthcare around across all societies, but I think with some ethnic groups and, you know, me being South Asian, I can, I can speak to my own community that there is, you know, it's, it's, I think, deeply ingrained in who we are. And it, the, I feel like a large part of that conditioning comes from our childhoods also. Mm -hmm. um, our childhoods, our family systems, you know, what's deemed appropriate, what's deemed not appropriate to speak about. Um, one thing I've noticed in the South Asian community is there is quite a bit of family dysfunction. And, you know, things like substance use disorder, I, I think Vaughn had touched upon a, a, the biological basis for it, that there's genetic and epigenetic studies where things do get passed on from one generation to the other. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so in, in medicine, we take family histories 
you know, as very much as a part of our uh, initial intake because, you know, whether it's diabetes or high cholesterol or substance use disorder, these things oftentimes are passed on. So the genetics of it, you know, is passed on from one generation to the other, the biological basis. And then you have the activation of those genes, right, um, as, as a secondary component. So interestingly, in our practice being gastroenterology, we do have some patients of ours that come in that, you know, say have a strong family history of alcohol use disorder, mm-hmm. that they've made a life decision to never have alcohol mm-hmm. because they feel like they maybe I don't know if they've researched it themselves or they just have a observational understanding, okay. you know, based on what they've observed with family members or what they've experienced the negative aspects of, you know, a, a father or mother being alcoholic or a grandparent, but they've made a conscientious decision that I know I have this strong genetic basis. So I'm going to make a life decision to not ever drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take the risk of turning on that gene expression. So, um, so, but in our South Asian community, I feel like destigmatizing a lot of these uh, topics is very important Be- yeah. because I feel like, you know, in, in our community, there's, we, we try to segregate things into normal and abnormal. And if you have a genetic family history of substance use disorder, um, I think maybe uh, normalizing some of that terminology and the understanding within your own family unit is important because, you know, that may impact future generations, right? Um, and also remodel the, the genetic, the, the genetics for family lineage also. Yeah. So it is, it is important, like you said, because there are so many things within, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> there are so many, um, you know, things within our own community that we really don't talk about. And we, I know things are changing, but they are changing slowly, very slowly. And, and which, which is a good sign, but, um, it needs to be, we, we need to really focus on, t- um, talking about topics like this, just within our family or because, you know, kids sometimes also need that guidance. They don't know. And if we don't talk to them, when they're home and we we don't know because now even with kids for instance it's all about privacy and it's all about you know they you know it's their own private life we don't want to we don't ask those questions um even with the young you know the devices right everyone's on their devices these days so we sometimes lose that uh, that touch with our own with our own kids and I guess even we are not, we don't have that knowledge. So to educate ourselves first is, uh, is important. Yeah. So why is mental and behavioral health important to physical health? I mean, I think we've, we've touched Got upon touched this, on that. that, but I think that it really goes hand in hand, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, neurohormonal, um, uh, factors that are tied into this. Um, you know, I think Vaughn and Rachel had talked about the women, you know, oftentimes they'll go into treat, a treatment program, but then go back into that same environment, right? And trigger that cascade of, um, you know, either seeking out dopamine or, uh, 
your um, stress hormone levels go up. So, you know, you're you're basically triggering and re-triggering those cascades, which, I mean, just talking about cortisol alone, that wreaks a whole host of issues on the physical body as well. So um, I don't think we should separate mental health and physical health, in my opinion. I think that mental health is physical health. So um, I'm not sure where that divide came about. Um, and um, But I, I, I hope in the future we can bring it back together. Because, right. you know, the person's a holistic person. They're not separated into just their mind versus their body, right? Mm. Our mind and body are tied together, whether you're just looking at it from a pure scientific standpoint or where you're, whether you're looking at it from a spiritual standpoint. Um, you know, whatever your perspective is, um, it, it is one and the same. I, I don't uh, – I'm not sure where that divide came about or how it came about entirely, but, you know, um, even in medicine, the field of psychiatry largely for many years was separated out, you know, um, in, in some ways, um, where you had the practitioners for the physical part of it, but then you had mental health practitioners. They were like kind of a, a subgroup on their own. Um, nowadays, I feel like it's getting more integrated. Mm -hmm. um, but I think going forward into the future, I hope that it they just they don't view it any differently. So in my opinion, mental health is physical health because there's a lot in the background that's tied together. Yeah, that's true. And I guess the word mental itself is very daunting for a lot of people because they think, you know, I'm not crazy, you know, what whatever's happening to me. And I've heard so many uh, stories about that. You know, we've had, uh, we did a whole series on mental health during Mental Health Awareness Month. And uh, hearing those stories, because this, this, we don't know what, uh, you know, that we cannot differentiate sometimes. And it, it is so hard. And I think many times also, um, we think, oh, if I say this, like I'm thinking of this and I'm, I'm going through depression or something's happening to me, sometimes we don't even talk about it because we are afraid of the judgment. And many times that happens in, uh, you know, in society itself, because then you have that label, I guess. Right. So it's it's hard. It's difficult. Okay, Vanita, so what would you want people in the South Asian community be aware of about substance abuse and behavioral health? I, I think that our community needs to wake up a little bit in terms of having more honest conversations hmm. about the statistics around substance use disorder. Um, and I, I haven't looked at all the studies, but I, I uh, tried to, you know, touch upon a couple of sources that say that we have about 3 million um, in the U.S. of South Asian background identified substance use disorder. Okay. Um, there's probably a lot of that are unidentified as well. So, um, which I, I feel like even just the identified population is large. Mm -hmm. So um, large enough where I think as a community, we need to be talking about this more. Um, and, you know, just like we've spoken about in, you know, uh, a couple of minutes ago, I think talking about a topic more um, actually, and learning the terminology behind it and learning the basis for it um, and learning what are the concrete solutions um, to us individually, our family units, and our society um, helps remove that stigma. Okay. Um, I feel like a lot of times we 
stigma, overly stigmatize things and give it more power than necessary by not having those conversations. You know, uh, then I feel like the shame, fear, and guilt actually take on more power. Um, being able to, I even think, you know, maybe screening, you know, better screenings for patients, you know, as, as we have a lot of, um, physicians and, um, you know, other, uh, NPPs in our South Asian community. Um, and a lot of those providers do have a heavy South Asian population. So, you know, perhaps having better screening, right? Um, yeah, yeah there, I mean, there are like there are evidence based like screening programs and protocols out there for screening for substance use and risk. You know, one of the things I was going to add in terms of creating more open conversation around this is it it really can influence the outcome. So, you know, one of the things we know about substance use disorders is they um, are progressive diseases, right? So the longer somebody struggles with it, the more deadly it becomes, the more consequences to their health um, and their life somebody's going to experience. So creating more openness to be able to have these conversations with family members, with children, so that intervention can happen earlier is actually really important. The, the sooner we intervene, the easier it is to help someone do something about it uh, versus the longer it goes on uh, without any intervention, without any help, the more complicated it's going to get for that individual and, and the greater the risk that they will actually die from this disease. Mm-hmm. So are there any, um, uh, what do you call it, um, you know, like events or anything that you all have that, you know, helps with educating uh, um, the community in terms of talking about substance, uh, substance use? Sure. We have a few events. We do have an upcoming Faith Leaders Breakfast that Santa Maria will be hosting for people of all faith backgrounds who represent faith communities who want to get more involved um, with us and also find out what kind of education we could help provide to their faith community. And that event is coming up, so folks can get on the website and contact me about that. I'd be happy to chat with them. We also have a major fundraising event every spring. This is a slightly different. It's not so much as a marketing or informative event about our programs, but one that helps us raise money and awareness for Santa Maria um, to keep serving women in the greater Houston area. We also participate in community events like uh, Rally for Recovery, other sort of community partnerships that are really focused on creating awareness. And then our prevention team is in the schools doing Mm -hmm. a lot of this sort of intervention and education as well. Okay. And can you share some success stories with our listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. <laughs> That's one of the most fun parts, right, about Santa Maria is is yeah. being able to sit down with an alumni and hear how she's been able to move on her, in her life and just be successful in our community and really give back. Um, one particular alumni comes to mind, Kaylin. She um, had been a participant in our Women with Children program a few years ago. She had two school-age children and it was discovered by a social worker who she had reached out to for financial assistance with school supplies and different things. And the social worker quickly discovered she needed this assistance because she had a substance use disorder. 
And so Kaylin found herself, unfortunately, in a position where Child Protective Services was becoming involved in her life. And she was just absolutely driven to do anything possible to stay with her children. And fortunately, um, the caseworker she was working with was like, Santa Maria is the place for Kaylin. This is where she can get the help she needs. She can stay with her children. And um, Kaylin dove into our programming with her whole self with a desire to beat substance use disorder, to be a healthy mom for her two kids, which she very much is today. Today, Kaylin is a peer recovery coach in our community, helping other women. She doesn't work for Santa Maria, but that's okay. We're <laughs> still, still happy for her. Her children are now extremely successful in school. They do extracurricular activities like choir and ta- taekwondo. She volunteers with her local faith community that she became involved with while she was at Santa Maria. So that's one of our success stories that we like to point to. Kaylin's story is very representative of the women that we serve. And so it's just she would just tell women coming into our program, just just do it, even if it seems silly at the time, just go to all your classes, take everything in. If Santa Maria offers a service to you, you probably need it, right? And so <laughs> she's um, that's really something that she echoed to me when I was able to sit down with her. That's great. That's such a wonderful story to hear from where she started <laughs> and now where she is. And she's helping so many too. She is, and yeah. she's completely bilingual, being from Central America herself. So that's also a huge need is um, the need for bilingual employees yeah. in the recovery community. So that's a huge benefit that she brings as well. Um, Vanita, do you think like where, uh, you know, where doctors are concerned, should they, I mean, you know, should they also be more, you know, like get involved, like in the sense, like be more educated about things like that, or how to be, you know, get more awareness as well? Definitely. I I think that, you know, um, if you want to kind of talk a bit about this on a more scalable level, um, I think, uh, you know, educating the people that will screen and identify um, a lot of uh, the client, potential clients Mm -hmm. um, or patients um, is I think probably a very practical approach because reaching the end user um, is more difficult than um, educating the first line um, person that's going to um, see a patient in general. And then, but the patient's not going to come and tell you, I have substance use disorder, right? Um, They're going to come in for diabetes, high cholesterol, um, abdominal pain, right? Um, So, but it's a, it's an amazing opportunity to screen for, like we screen for colon cancer screening or breast cancer screening. Um, I think mental health screening should just be part of any, you know, routine primary care visit be pediatrics or on the adult side. Um, You know, even on the pediatric side, the family, uh, the parents could have mental health issues or or a mental health diagnosis or a substance use disorder um, diagnosis, which then is an amazing opportunity to be proactive Mm -hmm. and educate the family, perhaps get treatment for the parents themselves, but educate the parents on how are we going to not carry this forward mm-hmm. into your children and their children? 
Yeah, I mean, I do think there's a lot of opportunity for providers to be screening and, and asking these kinds of questions in a way that invites um, honesty, right? Um, I mean, even just as simple as you're not drinking alcohol, are you? Um, right? Versus how many drinks, right? Are you ha- right? asking these questions in a really inviting way, providing education? There is a program out there called ESPERT. Um, it's called Screening, Brief Intervention, and Recommendation to Treatment, a referral to treatment. Um, but it is a, a very easy to get free training on um, for any kind of um, primary care, um, nurses, physicians, providers, anybody can participate in the SBIRT model um, and then be able to make those recommendations. It trains basically on how to ask those kinds of screening questions in any kind of healthcare setting so that people end up sort of referred to the right place. So the resources exist mm. um, if, if there is interest in it. Okay. And uh, what about schools when it comes to teachers and yeah, I mean, well. I, I, I do think that there is lots of intervention happening there in terms of school counselors, school sh- social workers. Um, I mean, we've had situations where it was the child school counselor that recommended that mom come into services for us. Okay. Um, so, you know, we, we actually saw like during COVID, right, because children were not in school, uh, they weren't sort of getting screened. There was no one monitoring them. A lot of things maybe were missed during that time. Uh, so I do think that there is screening happening in schools um, when it comes to sort of the safety of the children, but maybe not as much around sort of primary care for, for adults. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. That's good to know. <laughs> so how can the community get involved? <laughs> so the community can be involved with Santa Maria in a number of ways. Okay. Of course, helping financially is always a great way to be involved. Hopping on the website and giving any kind of monetary donation just helps us to be able to pay our staff and to, you know, keep things up and running for Santa Maria. We also um, have volunteers that come on our site, whether it's a group, you know, a school group, a uh, faith community, even a corporate group, come and do volunteer work on our site. We also work with a large number of individual volunteers. And the training is a bit robust just because of the sensitive nature of what we do at Santa Maria. But we do welcome individual volunteers to come and be a part of our community. Anything from rocking a baby to sorting clothing items in our non-transactional store, or sorting shampoo, conditioner in our basic needs closet. We we use a lot of what we call gift in kind, which is gifts of objects, um, okay. as opposed to just dollars. So if anyone wanted to do a drive at their business or at their faith community to help us out, that would be greatly appreciated. We're always in need of hygiene, women's hygiene products. <laughs> <laughs> So if someone wants to do donate, you know, the the basic needs and mm-hmm. if they just want to order online or something, can it be shipped directly to y'all? Yes. Unfortunately, we no longer have a wish list with, with Amazon, but anyone can get on any site like Amazon or DoorDash even. Okay. And just if you, you can just put those items to, to my attention, Rachel Wright, or even attention donation okay. is fantastic. And we're always in need of body wash, shampoo, conditioner, yeah, anything wedding, like that. Leggings. Um, new bras and underwear, (laughs) you know, I mean, because I think to this point, it's really important that our participants that come through services with us pay nothing to Mm -hmm. be there. 
um, right? That they they typically are coming with almost nothing with them, um, and there's no cost for them to receive services with us. Okay, so that's good to know because I know there are a lot of people who are listening. Many of them, uh, after the show, they sometimes reach out to us, and you know, they're like, "I hey, you know, I'd like to donate some mm-hmm. um, basic needs for women, for mm-hmm. children." So that's that's good to put it out there mm-hmm. for anyone who is interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap up. Um, any message to our listeners? I'll start with you, Vanita. Um, I'll, I'll make a comment specific to the South Asian community. Um, I think that we can definitely have better screening tools in place for practitioners because I think in the South Asian community, we tend to compensate very well and we're very high-functioning. Um, a lot of South Asians came here on the basis of education. So somehow we've, you know, managed to keep it together. And uh, so you don't see maybe the indigent side of substance use disorder. You'll see the high functioning side. So I think we we can get very easily tricked by that. Okay. Um, and I think that's just something for South Asians to keep in mind. We're just really grateful for an opportunity to share about the work that we do at Santa Maria and just give a voice to this issue in our community and just really appreciate whatever the listeners can do, whether it's sharing what they heard today or whether it's engaging with us in, in, in some other way. But just being aware and knowing is a huge opportunity. Thank you. So I think the last thing that I will share with your listeners, you know, we've talked about alcohol, we've talked a little bit about marijuana, we haven't really talked about the opioid crisis, Mm -hmm. um, and really what is sort of the fentanyl crisis now. Um, And I think that is something for people to really be aware of to be talking with their family members, and their young children um, about, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of it, with fentanyl on the streets now, it really only takes one time uh, for someone to overdose and die. Um, fentanyl is a hundred times stronger than morphine. It has infiltrated almost every substance that people are, are purchasing illegally, um, whether uh, they might think they're purchasing hydrocodone, methamphetamine, uh, cocaine, ecstasy, any of the things that people that think they're purchasing on the streets now when it's tested has fentanyl in it. Um, and it is, you know, killing Texans and people around uh, the country at a rapid rate. And so the health risks um, and the, the life and death situation there is really important that it only takes uh, one time. That's so disturbing. It's terrifying. It is. People should be scared. Yeah. And um, I know this is not the last time. You guys, you know, you ladies, uh, we would love to talk more about that, go into more in-depth uh, conversation into that get uh, people to learn more mm-hmm. about about it as well so I would definitely would love you all to come back and uh, talk more about uh, you know any sort of drug or substance use that way the more awareness we raise together the more you know we are helping our own community mm-hmm. and that is so important 
Thank you so much, ladies, for joining me here on Chai Time. This has been such an eye-opener for me, too, uh, learning about Santa Maria. And me being a small business uh, owner, I'm, I'll be very happy to support <laughs> you all, partner you. <laughs> with you all in whatever way uh, we can as well. And anyone who's listening would like to support and be, you know, help and uh, be part of Santa Maria, do reach out to them. Uh, we will share their contact uh, on our website, on our uh, page as well, and that way people can reach out. So Wonderful. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for joining us here on Chai Time. We shall